came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Xenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, welcome everybody back to Disasters Deconstructed for another week. We're so pleased to be with you. Hey, Ksenia. Hey, hey, Jason. Penultimate episode. Whoop. I know. Wow, it's amazing. We're almost at the end of another season. And um, thanks for, yeah, sticking with us for like two years now, right? Wow, two yeah. years. Hmm. But I, I guess we can reminisce um, next week when Tyrion is back with us, right? True. But something that keeps coming up, I think, um, as we as we progress and we have these conversations and kind of go deeper on different issues is the role of um, alternative kind of theory that's outside of our field informing the study of disasters and, and the practice of working in disaster risk reduction or related fields. And so... Um, I, th- I think it's interesting today that we get to go a bit deeper maybe into how um, feminist theory and practice can actually inform our work on uh, DRR. And um, it's it's kind of a discussion, I think, that's um, a little bit tangential at times, but I think it's uh, so critical that we draw from feminist theory to inform our work, right? No, totally. And it's really kind of it's fascinating for me and the more i think about this episode and just generally things that we've been discussing right through this uh season and also with the guests that we have is how little we know um that is outside of disaster studies right how little we actually engage with Mm. reading that is outside of disaster studies and how useful that reading is you know be that um critical theory um be that um, I, I I don't know, just kind of philosophy in general, right? Um, and, and we really need to push ourselves to engage more and more and more because if we don't understand the concepts and ideas behind feminism, um, it almost becomes impossible to talk about gender and vulnerability and kind of sexuality, right, which are so important in disasters. And it's the same with critical urban theory that if we don't understand it, then how can we possibly talk about cities where kind of disasters manifest themselves, right, where they unfold? Um, so yeah, th- th- this is fascinating. So throughout all of our seasons so far, we've been really challenging our thinking about vulnerability and marginalization and how we talk about these things and who talks about them. And today we're continuing that conversation. And our guest today is Professor Cheryl Pothitter, 
uh, who is the head of Gender Justice, Health and Human Development and also the head of Research and Doctoral Leadership Academy at the Durban University of Technology. Um, I've been very privileged uh, to work with Cheryl for the past few months and we've engaged in some absolutely inspiring and fascinating conversations about gender, um, intersectionality, resilience and feminism. Um, and Cheryl's work focuses on psychology, gender, sexuality and higher education. So I'm sure we will have a very exciting conversation today. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the introduction. Well, we have so many questions for you. So let's begin. Well, um, you know, we had a conversation recently um, and I've learned and I was absolutely fascinated by that, that before you pursued your academic career um, and, you know, before you did your PhD, you were actively involved um, in political women's activist groups. Um, so could you tell us a little more about your research journey and how you connect your politics and activism with your academic self? Uh, yes, of course. Um, I, was a, I was an activist in South Africa during the anti-apartheid movement. So I became an academic as a result of my activism. So maybe to talk a little bit about my location of space. In South Africa, um, I was classified as, as black in, in our uh, South African anti-apartheid uh, um, uh, history. I was classified as, as colored, which is a, 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 an identification label, which I don't accept. So my earliest memory of... Um, a memory that I connect as you know to to activism and 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 um, theory and my journey as an academic is that when I was about six years old, I was asked to leave a play park uh, where I was playing with children. I just walked into the park and I was asked to leave because I was not white. And then another part hmm. of it that I remember very clearly, I was 15 years old and I went to, to the city downtown and I was waiting for my father and I was waiting under a statue of Queen Victoria. I mean, in that you know, captures colonialism. And while I was waiting, I decided to go into the library, which was just behind the statue. And I went into the library and I was asked to leave because um, I was not uh, classified as white. And um, the due to apartheid legislation, I could not be in that library. So I mm. come from a, a quite a political family and I, I attended a historically black university undergrad, which was the University of Western Cape. And I went there and not to any of the other universities that was designated for white people as a result of the fact that my father specifically would not allow me to, and I agreed with him, would not allow me to apply for a permit to go to a university which was for so-called all, all races. And if you went there, you had to do a subject that was not offered at one of the historically uh, black universities or the universities that was designated for my so-called population group. Mm. So I became involved in the um, the underground African National Congress, and prior to that, the 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 United Democratic Front, which was a broad um, a movement of anti-apartheid forces, and then I was linked to 
to women's political movements in the country, which was very closely linked to the United Democratic Front. So when I finished my degree, I couldn't get a teaching position. I eventually got one, but stayed there only for three months because it was I was involved politically and it was quite dangerous for me to be at, at schools at that stage because they were recruiting people out of uh, my classes into the underground uh, MK organization. So maybe we move forward a bit. And then I had been a good student, so I was offered a position as a senior lab assistant at the University of Western Cape, which was a very progressive university. And I then did a, a postgraduate degree and then I did a master's degree and eventually a PhD all while I was working as a, as a junior teacher or lecturer at the university. But during that time, I was also very involved simultaneously with the anti-apartheid movement. And um, if I, and you know, we went to, to prison a day here, a week here, it was just part of, it was just part of life at that stage. And then I was exposed to feminist thinking in, in consciousness raising groups, but the issue that was often not spoken about was the issue of sexuality. We spoke about the issue of race, we spoke about the issue of gender, but sexualities was excluded. And um, I then, decades ago, pursued the scholar, what I call the scholar-activist mode of engagement in terms of, of my career. And um, there was a um uh, in in 1993 i came to the us as a visiting scholar at the university of missouri and it was a few months before our first democratic election in south africa and i had to make a decision do i keep my name on the list to go into parliament as a member of the African National Congress or do I pursue and continue to pursue an academic career? At that stage, I then made a decision that I will complete my and continue doing my PhD, but I would always have a link with the broader society. And uh, that decision then also reflected in my work uh, decades, decades later. And, um, and that is part of my journey as a, as an activist and an academic. And I eventually probably reached the, the highest levels of ac academia in South Africa because I was a deputy vice chancellor, which is a vice principal of a university and very few women and specifically black women mm -hmm. in the country reach that space. But my decision in the past three or four years is to come back to being a scholar because I also, my thinking and my ideology, I have challenges um, or it's there's a disconnect between uh, my 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 ideology and what one needs to implement as a high level uh, bureaucrat and leader in higher education um, at the moment. It's great, Charles. Thanks for sharing about your 
work through time and um, your like how you've come to the position that you're in. And um, I'm interested because you mentioned race, gender, and sexuality being central to the work that you've done. And in our field of disaster studies, race and gender are quite frequently discussed, but sexuality is not really. So why do you think it might be that we don't talk about sexuality in this research field? And why do you think we need to talk about it? I, I think that there's a paucity of talking about sexuality in most disciplines, and it's not only in the area of disaster studies. Um, if I look at psychology, it's uh, for many decades it was also silenced, or even though there is an increase in talking about it. But if we go back, it's, I also believe that it's not that sexuality has not been spoken about, it's the way in which it has been spoken about. It's either in, an, mm. in a negative way, or sexuality is dirty, or children under 12 or under 13, they don't have a sexuality. Mm. And uh, I, I think that religion has a, a lot to to account for all religions in the silencing of sexuality. And obviously, religion is very closely linked to, uh, in many countries, to the state and to institutions, whether it is schools or um, or sporting institution or whatever the case. Let me put it this way. Sexual silence leads to sexual violence. And the silencing of sexuality means that women and girls, and obviously uh, other groupings as well, but let's talk about women and girls, there mm -hmm. is the, the silencing, so it limits the, the it limits the, the ability to negotiate within sexual relations. Um, it, uh, it silences uh, abuse when uh, men are abusing young girls and, and young children. There's the, the, the silence that they don't have the, the language to explain what is happening to them, but also they have been taught to not talk about sex and sexuality. So when the older man or the older boy is abusing the young girl, she doesn't tell it to her teachers or her parents because it is that is something that we don't talk about, uh, 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 whether it's in a negative space or in mm -hmm. a, a positive way. And uh, I, if we look at this, the challenges that we have in terms of HIV in South Africa and on the continent, there's also the denial that we are having sex. So, uh, mm -hmm. as as a as a counselor, many years ago, I would ha counsel students in university or even in the community organisations that I was working, and they would be two months pregnant and they would say, but I have not slept with anybody. And 
And that was the issue, the denial of sexuality, because your sexuality only is allowed to happen when you have been married legally and most likely in a heterosexual marriage. So the silencing or the negative way in which sexuality is constructed leads to all kinds of challenges uh, and the point that I made that the, the sexual silence leads to various forms of sexual violence throughout the lifespan. And obviously it has um, impacts on women's career trajectories mm. and, um, and, and women achieving what they rightfully are able or should be achieving in particular or all contexts. This morning I was reading um, Judith Butler, um, uh, you know her, her books on non, her book on nonviolence, and she was talking in, in kind of in, in the final words she was talking about the uh, feminicide and how that it, it basically um, a kind of systemic um, systemic inequality in that women don't even have a power to say because very often uh, they're not even heard when they talk about. Um, talk about sexuality and how they experience it very often from the kind of power position or lack of power position, I suppose. Um, that, that moves us nicely to, to my next question about oppression and marginalization. Um, and, you know, we, we, we do reflect on marginalization um, a lot. Um, and I suppose many of us agree, particularly not that uh, those who listen to this podcast and that the way we talk about marginalization in general um, and also in disasters is actually quite reductionist um, because we think um, in categories, right? Um, and by doing that, we're actually othering many people. So we discuss women, we discuss children, we discuss disabled, um, you know, we discuss, um, uh, I don't know, um, gay people and we put them in categories. And what's more, these categories very often have to compete for attention, right? They sort of have to compete with one another. Um, and you often highlight that we therefore need to engage more and focus more on the lived experiences rather than on the categories. So how can we do that? And is it possible not to actually other people whilst discussing oppression and marginal marginalization? I've, I've been thinking of late a lot about this issue of marginalization and categories. Now, I think academics in, in South Africa and even on the African continent, we have been very clear about the issue of intersectionality in our work. And, mo and uh, initially there was... It, it it wasn't as as big as an issue, but black women and women of color and have been very clear in our work about the issue of intersectionality as as feminists. And obviously that is as a result of our lived our lived experience. But mm -hmm. if I'm if I may, I also want to highlight the fact that, you know, in in South Africa and on the African continent, we have not really had a discipline or a department, uh, academic department called disaster studies or gender and mm -hmm. disaster. So when I was invited to this grouping, uh, the group grouping that we are met you, uh, 
I've also um, I've also then started thinking why do we not have this uh, uh, this uh, discipline or way of engagement? Mm-hmm. And I haven't come to an absolute answer. But what I do want to highlight is that, I mean, if you look at South Africa and the, the, the Southern Africa and the broader African region, lots, a lot of the work that we are doing would fall into the area of disaster. And here I'm talking about disaster much broader. I like your engagement, Kesnia, where you talk about the disaster of capitalism and other mm. disasters, which is not usually seen as 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 disaster. So um, it's uh, it's that, for example, is is not common the the issue of disaster disaster studies, and um, I, I also want to talk a bit about to maybe touch on the idea the the issue of minorities so we talk mm-hmm. about sexual minorities and uh, various other minorities and i'm also concerned that we probably also need to engage more with debunking or engaging with what we understand by minorities um because minorities is not only an issue of numbers obviously the issue of power so mm. maybe the whole discourse of minorities needs to be turned on its on its head in 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 a way um i i i i'm of the opinion that if we are going to ensure that that we recognize the issue of power and Foucault's notion of power in most mm. of the work that we da- do, that we all have power, we would also be aware and cautious that even in our good intentions in terms of recognizing intersectionality, that we ensure that uh, that that research or that the groupings that we are working with are not othered. Uh, but mm-hmm. I I don't, I'm, I'm of the opinion that we just need to be careful, for want of a better word, in the way in which we, which we engage. And our theory needs to reflect and engage with our policies and interventions to ensure that we don't end up with a very reductionist way of engagement uh, with, with in terms of our work and also engaging when we engage with, with communities. Um, like in 2017, there was major protests in South Africa in terms of higher education and students correctly requesting that they wanted free education and as the 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 struggle continued over a number of months women and black women and black lesbian women particularly came out very clearly and said that within the struggle for free education they were a grouping that was silenced or marginalized in the um in in the um, in the demands that were made and the way in which they were engaged with by uh, people in power as well as by 
their own what they called uh, what the, their own comrades, uh, which was a label mm. that with mm. that which which they used. I I think it's so interesting, and you know, I also think about the kind of the the, the wording of minority a lot, and how. Um, by kind of accepting, I guess, minority, you know, by making them normal, and I use normal in quotation mark, what we actually do um, by this fact of inclusion is that we include them in the hegemonic social structures, right? Where um, it is this hegemonic social structures that deem something normal and natural, right? Whereas everything else um, that is not normal, again, in quotation mark, becomes kind of perverse and pathological, Um but it is those structures that define normal and therefore, um, well, it's, I guess it's the whole kind of lifeblood of neoliberal capitalism that allows to define that. Yes, of course. It's, I mean, what, what is the, where are you starting? What, what are you defining as the beginning point? And I, I, I think that's where we then also start defining you are minority and we mm -hmm. are not or you we are and you are not so um uh, and it all comes down to probably who has has power um i mean also in the south in the south african sense i mean when we talk about minorities it's about also who talks for who and who represents who like um recently somebody had been has been appointed to a major committee in south africa and i won't give the details because uh, i don't think that's necessary but the woman the woman that has been appointed she's been in the country for a while but she has a broad foreign accent and people have not responded very well to it because an accent in our location defines space and locality and histories and for me i've just been watching in the in the media how that has been being played out so you the 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 the, the very sort of garden variety basic argument is you cannot have this foreign accent and it's seen as a colonial foreign accent and mm -hmm. be leading a south african organization which is supposed to challenge uh, issues of gender discrimination and obviously the whole issue of what we understand to be uh, the decolonization moment. So Cheryl, in all of um, your work, you emphasize an underlying commitment to justice and society and pursuing justice. And earlier on, you talked about yourself as a scholar activist, and your experience has been quite broad in this sort of interface between that struggle and um, being a, a scientist. So how do we ensure that our participation in the scientific community actually contributes to this um, fight for justice? Uh, you know, Jason, for me, I think 10 years or even 15 years ago, I had a, a very maybe narrower understanding of social justice 
as an academic and how academics engage with the project of social justice. Uh, mm. For me at that stage, it was, you know, you an activist and you work in the community and then you and here and and there was a disjuncture between your work as an activist as well as your academic work. So for me now as a as an academic and somebody that has been quite senior in in executive management in higher education in in the country, I I see social justice uh, as much broader and and I I believe that academics um, we the knowledge that we produce on the African continent producing knowledge and knowledge that is going to lead to transformation and better people's lives is an act of of social justice hmm. so there are many academics that I engage with that actually don't work in the community as we understand community engagement but hmm. they are producing knowledge that is impacting on change and transformation and meeting the for example the MDGs and then out the S and now the SDGs. So social justice for me is broad and it's linked to the knowledge that we that we produce. I also think in terms of social justice, it's not only what knowledge is produced, but by whom. And uh, so at a stage, there was mostly men and white men producing knowledge, and we need to ensure that that women produce knowledge and and women that goes across the spectra no, and also the, the 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 underlying paradigm is also important you cannot be doing research that doesn't understand the feminist or gender ethics so mm. if you are a biologist and your research is so called general gender neutral that for me needs to be engaged with because it will not be contributing overall to the project of social justice and decolonization which is um which is important to the african to the African continent or to, to spaces of of, deve of development, I I all it's also in terms of I mean I I believe that not all qualitative research is is social justice research, but a, a lot of it is social contributes to social justice, and it is it's it's linked to the issue of um, you know access and being accountable so for example if you go into a community you don't just go into the community collect the data and disappear you initially engage with the uh, people that represent uh, the community net networks and you 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 go back and you share the, your findings with them but you could also have at, at a very sort of very a practical level i mean social justice would also ensure that your your participants have a voice in different stages of 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 your of your research mm -hmm. 
um, in in South Africa and and broader on the continent as well, we have, and I think most countries have this at the moment, is that we're very clear about the the ethics of research. So if you're an academic and you're at a university, you have to um, you have to abide by the ethics of research and good governance. And uh, luckily, on the in in South Africa, let me talk about South Africa because this is where I live. I our our research ethics um, has and is continues to contribute uh, to a broad policy of 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 trans of transformation. Obviously, they are there are mistakes here and there, but I, I think our policy framework in terms of social justice and research is um, um, is, 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 is quite good. Um, I personally, I am not an activist as in the way I used to be an activist uh, because mm. times have changed in the country and one has to make a decision of to where you put your skill set and how you make a contribution. So two years ago, I accepted the um, the appointment by the premier of the province where I live and where my university is based to be one of three commissioners to investigate political, political killings in the province. And we mm-hmm. produced a, a report and which went to to our government. And for me... That was also my contribution to social justice in in research. I was mm. the the academic on the panel, and the other two were quite senior, prominent uh, advocates advocates in 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 the country. So I think as 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 academics, our research we 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 have to make a decision where and how we want to. To contribute to, to to social justice, and I believe that um, we we also need to ensure that our research is innovative and forward thinking. So I do support blue, what we call blue sky research, because that for me would be a contribution to social justice and transformation. Um, Across historical periods, it won't. It it will be sustainable and make a contribution over over decades and mm. and even longer. Mm. There's there's so many things there that um, I wish we had a few hours to unpack. And uh, <laughs> but like when when you talk about like the the focus that we need in our research on ethics and equity and justice it it makes me um just reflect on like the disaster studies manifesto that a collective wrote um and we've discussed on the podcast previously that's trying to you know point to ways that we can do these things and then also just in in the podcast generally i really i, I love that you pointed out you know what whether you're whatever you're researching if you don't have an understanding of some of these different bodies of theory, then your your research is is not going to have the impact that it could, right? And so that's something that we've been discussing a lot is like how do how does radical feminist theory impact disaster studies? And for most people in disaster studies, 
they don't even they they don't have any background in that they've never re- read any of the the work and so it has yeah. no impact on their research projects which mm-hmm. is which is such a missed opportunity mm. and and you see for me uh, Jason Kisnia that that for me is one of my greatest challenges we have all these people um in in many spaces that are producing research and articles and lots of publication which many of obviously our universities want us to pro- produce mm-hmm. but the it lacks theory it lacks a mm-hmm. a a transformation or let's mm-hmm. say for example a feminist theory in under mm-hmm. in in their understanding so there's some this practice but there's no theory and sometimes there's no th- there's just theory and no practice yeah. uh, uh, so i mean i've been also looking at this new research that has been um uh, the new industry of research which is covid so mm-hmm. everybody and uh, so many people let me not say everybody so many people are now producing research on covid and uh, the, i mean the health scientists correctly so but then social scientists are producing research and yes we should but for me the quality of the research is a challenge and um i'm i'm work- currently working on an article and um and i'm taking quite long to complete it because my my challenge is that feminists have actually not gone back to to or, or not incorporated feminist theory or and practice and have not held governments accountable to mm. say what you are rolling out is a really welfareist approach but what about we really include a feminist engagement and understanding in our response to this disaster called covid mm. yeah mhm Wow, I, I, this is fascinating. I've got um, so much to reflect upon um, and to, to, to just digest and think about. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much, Cheryl, for being with us. It's been it's been amazing. I'm so interested in in um, your work and your your path to where you are now, and um, I'd love to learn more in the future. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Ksenia, Jason and me, Cheryl Porthitter, on Disasters Deconstructed podcast.